I'll begin with a, a recap of the things that we've been looking at so far for the past several weeks and months. Anytime you do a, a series of sermons like this, it's important that we keep in mind everything we've heard. It's clear from God's Word that Christians, among other things, are people who keep God's commandments. And we looked and we spent actually the broad majority of our time opening up that truth that in God's Word we find the promise, expectation, and requirement of a living, breathing flesh and blood righteousness with our name on it. That is, God promises that Christians will keep the Ten Commandments. And the salvation that is described in the Scriptures leads us to expect that a Christian will keep the Ten Commandments. And we even find passages of Scripture that lead us to conclude that God requires that His people keep His commandments. Now, we also qualify those statements with several things. First, none of this is in order to our justification. In other words, we don't keep the commandments of God or we aren't commanded to keep the commandments of God in order to earn our standing, our place with God. If that were the requirement, none of us would meet it. We can't do it perfectly in order to be justified. That's carried out according to the work of Christ alone. But what we're seeing is that this obedience to the commandments of God is a fruit of what has happened in our justification. It's, it's a manifestation of the fact that we've been brought into that right standing with God. It's also clear from Scripture, especially in the teachings of Christ, and we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, that what God requires of us in the area of obedience is much more than just an external formalism. It's not just doing the right things outwardly. God promises, expects, and requires an obedience first of the heart that will manifest itself in outward actions. In other words, it takes into compass the whole man, inner man and outer man. It's not just formal. The Pharisees had that. They had the formal. They didn't have the internal work of the Spirit. God requires an obedience that begins in the heart. And the disposition of heart, which renders obedience according to God's requirement, is one of faith. The just shall live by faith. We walk in these lives by faith. Christians obey, but not in their own strength. We look outside of ourselves to God for the strength. Christians obey, but not in order to be justified. We look outside of ourselves for justification. Christians obey, looking to God in Christ by the Spirit for the strength to walk in a way that is pleasing to God, as well as always keeping in mind that we've already been justified through faith because of the righteousness of Christ. So we, we, the Christian with one eye looks to the law to see what God requires. And with the other eye looks to Christ to see what He's already provided. And then we live with both of those things in the balance. We must live in obedience. And we must live by faith. And so we've been answering the question, how do we live by faith? What does that actually look like? And we need to answer that question because there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians who would throw out an, an, an untold number of definitions or, or explanations as to what it means to live by faith. And you hear terms like radical and, and extraordinary and things like that, but when we look in the Scriptures, that's actually not what we see. What we find in the Scriptures is the life of faith is a life that looks to God's Word and does what God commands. So we ask, what does the Bible teach? What does it look like to conduct one's life according to faith? And again, it begins by rooting ourselves in the Word of God as it reveals what God has done for us in Christ. So last week, we opened up Romans 6, 1 through 14. We saw that the Christian is one who has suffered a death and has undergone a resurrection. And both of those in direct connection with the physical death and resurrection of the man, Jesus Christ. When Christ died, we died with Him in order that the 
penalty of the law of God would be satisfied in our circumstance. We died to the penalty of the law of God. When Christ was raised, we were raised with Him to walk in a new way of living, a new life. And the new life is one in which the body of sin is being brought to nothing. Our sins are being mortified because we're no longer enslaved to sin. Realizing that God has done this for us shows us His love. Seeing God's love causes us to respond with love. We love because He first loved us. So we see His love manifested in the giving of His Son. We respond with love to God in light of that work. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So in seeing the love of God, that actually causes us to keep the commandments of God. Looking to the work of Christ causes, produces obedience. It doesn't produce lawlessness. It doesn't produce licentiousness. The person who says, well, if Christ has done everything, then I can live however I want, that person has never truly contemplated the work of Christ. But the Christian who's beheld the work of Christ, delivered to us and performed for us by God, the one who truly conceives of what God has done, would never turn around and say, well, then I will disobey all of His commandments. We say, I want to keep every one of them. I want, to, I want to walk closely with this God who would do this for me. It is in contemplation and looking upon and believing upon what Christ has done by faith that causes us to obey. But this is not to be confused with kind of what it sounds like and what has, has often been put forward as, as a Christian dogma, and that is uh, the power of positive thinking. Just think positively. Just think about good things and that will produce good things. I used the illustration last week. It's cloudy outside, but I'm just going to imagine that it's sunny so that I'm in a better mood. Well, that's, that's just imaginary. That's not, that's not based on reality. What we're commanded to do is to root our minds on reality. The reality that the man Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, buried, and was raised on our behalf. And that in His death and His resurrection, we have been raised to new life. We, we fix that thought in our minds. And then we live according to that. All of that's recap. So what we're going to do today, and Austin, we were talking last Lord's Day evening about this morning. And I said, well, I'm just going to take another text and preach the same sermon from a different text. Because I, I want to show you a, another text that I, I think produces the same outcome. It does the same thing as Romans 6, 1 to 14. This passage funnels our attention toward Christ. It fixes Christ before our eyes and it doesn't let us look away. The second thing it does is it, it brings into its orbit Christian living. In other words, it's not the doctrine of Christ separated from living. It's the doctrine of Christ and living right together and it answers the question, how do we live the life of faith? That's the passage that we read. Now, we're going to be focusing our attention on verses 3 and 4 of Romans 8. But I want to begin, like we should always begin, with a little bit of context. And Paul's letter to the Romans is a book which, because it is one long, sequential, reasoned argument, it's one of those books that you can take a single statement all by itself and you have a truth that might sound like it means one thing all by itself. But when you stick it back into what Paul's argument is, it's still true, it just is a different truth based on his argument. So we need to understand the context specifically here. So again, we, we covered this last week. In chapters 1 to 3, and this is a very basic summary, too simplistic probably. In chapters 1 to 3 of Romans, what Paul is doing is consigning all men to death in their sins. That's his goal. Then in chapter 4, he opens up the notion of justification by faith in Christ. In chapter 5, he traces justification to its source, the obedience of Christ, and he compares it with the opposite, the disobedience of Adam. He says all men are either in Adam, by nature, or you are in Christ, by the Spirit, a supernatural, a work of grace. Though all men are condemned in Adam based solely upon the work of Christ, 
or I, I should add a comma there. I'm quoting from last week. Though all men are condemned in Adam, comma, based solely upon the work of Christ, through faith, men can be declared righteous. That, that is the good news of the gospel. Then chapter 6 begins with that question regarding how are we to live. The imaginary objector of Romans says, if that's the case, if God's grace is magnified in justifying sinners based on the acts of Christ alone, then could we not just go on sinning in order to magnify God's grace? Paul responds, by no means. May it never be. It's not possible because we've died to sin and we are alive to God. We live to righteousness. We're, we've been raised to walk in newness of life. It's not possible for us to go on in that way. And chapter 6 is spent explaining this transition from slavery to sin to slavery to righteousness. And you could, if you read the rest of chapter 6, that's what, that's what it's saying. You were slaves to sin, now you're slaves to righteousness. You used to be bound here, now you're bound here. You used to be like this, now you're like this. He's talking about how a Christian lives. Chapter 7 continues that same discussion through verse 6. But now, I'll read it for you, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That's literally a single verse commentary on the sermon last week. We've died to the law because of Christ so that we may now serve, live our lives in a new way. Not according to the, the letter, the law itself, but according to the Spirit. We're still living we still render service to God. We just do it in a different way. We could say with a new power. Then beginning in verse 7 of chapter 7, there's that famous passage which answers the question, what shall we say then that the law is sin? And he answers the question in the negative. No, the law is not sin. The law is good. It just doesn't do what we needed it to do. To summarize the argument, we cannot live in sin because we've died to the law and to sin's guilt. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the written code. The imaginary objector says, so then the law is bad, the law is sin? Paul responds, no, the law is good. We are bad. That's the problem. Not the law, us. His argument is that the law simply could not produce the obedience that God required. God requires internal and external obedience, obedience from the heart. The law could not produce that kind of obedience. And even as Christians, as we serve in the new way of the Spirit, we still find the remnants of indwelling sin in our members. That's the argument in Romans 7. What the law couldn't do in our unregenerate state, it still can't do in our regenerate state. The law of God cannot deliver us from indwelling sin. And there we find that struggle within us. That's what Paul's illustrating in Romans 7. This great struggle. He says in verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, he's talking about Christian living, evil lies close at hand. So notice that the thread running through all of this discussion, going all the way back to chapter 6 and maybe even into chapter 5, is the way that a Christian is to live. How are we to think and how are we to live? We do not continue in sin. We're dead to sin. We're alive to God. We're slaves to righteousness, not slaves to sin. We're married to Christ. We serve in the new way of the Spirit. But we also find that when we want to do right, Evil lies close at hand. I'll summarize all of that with this quote from Octavius Winslow. This, he's describing what Paul has just done. Having portrayed with a master pen, himself sitting for the picture, the spiritual struggles of the children of God, he then proceeds in the passage under consideration, that's Romans 8, 1-4, to apply the divine consolation and support appropriate to a condition so distressing and humiliating. Because this is our, our situation, even as regenerate saints, is often distressing and humiliating. I have the Spirit of God. I've been changed. I've been transformed. I'm not a slave to sin. And yet I find in my members there is still this war. So what is Paul's 
to use his language, divine consolation. What's the consolation for the Christian in this place? Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now why does he need to say that here? We know that if we took that statement out and, and got a, a decal in calligraphy and we put it on the wall, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, every time we've seen it, we could rejoice, right? That's good news. That's a truth that should be over the banner of every Christian life and in our minds. There is, therefore, now, this very moment, as you live, no condemnation. The question is, why does Paul say it here in Romans 8, 1 and not Romans 4, Romans 5, Romans 6, Romans 7. Why does he say it here? Why is this such a crucial thing to understand at this point? And the answer, I think, is because he's just described the plight of every Christian in this world. We want to do right. We want to live a life of gospel obedience. We delight in the law of God in our inner man. But, oh wretched men and women that we are, we find this war constantly waging in us. There is this inner war and we recognize it. That when we want to do right, tomorrow when you bring, you're going to live. You're going to get up in the morning and you're going to do your quiet time. And you're going to say, alright, today I've got a new day. And yesterday and for months we've been talking about gospel obedience. And now I'm going to have to set out on this path of trying to live according to the righteous requirement of God's law. I'm going to try to obey Him. But I know that as soon as I get up from my chair... Evil is going to lie close at hand. Is it even worth trying again? Is it even worth it? Do we just give up? We know that the purest of our acts of obedience toward God have particles of sin and pride and self-promotion floating in them. Do we exercise our obedience in quivering terror that God might destroy us for the sin that is found and even our best deeds? Paul's answer is an emphatic no. Again, that's, that's thinking according to that covenant of works mentality. Why not? We, we respond. Paul's already said the wages of sin is death. Right? Even in my obedience, there's sin in my obedience. If the wages of sin is death there's sin in my obedience, then even my obedience earns me death. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation that's being put forth here, though certainly applicable in its broadest sense to all of the people of God with regard to all of our most heinous sins, is not viewing us in that original mass of of unregenerate sin. That, that's not who, who Paul has in mind here. He's looking at a Christian person. The condemnation here is the condemnation that we might expect from our obedience as Christians. That's the theme. And I, and I, I believe that most commentators ignore that theme. They just... Romans 7 is an end. Put it over here. Let's pick up with Romans 7. There's therefore, or Romans 8. There's therefore now no condemnation. Let's go back to justification and start at chapter 4 or chapter 5 again. But I don't think that's what Paul's doing. He's giving us the divine consolation. As you seek to obey, yes, your obedience will be full of sin. And yet, you can obey with confidence. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now all of that brings us to our text. Paul's opening up and expanding upon why there is no condemnation to the saints, even as we live in this constant war between the flesh and the Spirit. Romans 3 and 4 again, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The first thing we see in this passage is the inability of the law. The inability of the law. Notice that phrase, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
The law here, as in many places throughout Scripture, is a reference to the moral law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments. Whether that would be, as we think of it, written on man's heart by nature, whether we consider it as it was promulgated under the Mosaic Covenant and written on tablets of stone, the the picture is the summary of God's law. The Ten Commandments, its substance never changes. From, From the beginning of the world to the end of time, the substance of God's law never changes. And Paul says that the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do something. But he's not ascribing to the law a deficiency in it. He says in verse 12, the law is, this is verse 12 of chapter 7, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. In Galatians 3, we get a glimpse into the reason why a law would be given, specifically under the Mosaic Covenant. It was added because of transgressions. In other words, the giving of a law, especially to fallen men, serves to curb and restrain sin. In other words, the law is given because sin exists. And it's meant to restrain that sin. And in that usage, it works perfectly. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. But Paul says here that the law was weakened by the flesh. In other words, the the law was not weakened by the law. The law was weakened by us. The flesh being the sinful nature of man as it stands under the curse of sin in Adam. Again, when Adam fell, we fell. When Adam sinned, we sinned in him. Adam's breaking of the covenant of works rendered every human being after him a covenant breaker before God. As one author says, we are born under arrest. Criminals. That's our flesh. Us. In Hebrews 7, we read, A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. Now again, we could probably take that as the moral law and then opened up and applied in the the judicial and civil laws of Israel all of it tracing its, back, its way back to God's moral law in some sense. The law, given like this, could make nothing perfect. That word means complete. The law could not bring about the ultimate end and goal for which God was working. It served the ultimate goal, but it did not bring the ultimate goal. Why? Because of the flesh. Because of our sinful corruption. Because of our, our sinful nature under the curse in Adam. It couldn't address that. He says in Galatians 3.21, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. What's the point? We are by nature dead in trespasses and sins. Our problem is not that we need a law. Our problem is that we need life. The law could not give life. In Acts 13.39... We read, by Christ, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What's the point? We are by nature enslaved to sin. We're bound under condemnation. And the law, as it was given under Moses, could not address that. It could not fix that condition. Though it did point to the Christ who could fix that condition, who could set men free, it in itself did not do that. Romans 2.29, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Circumcision is a, 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 a picture of regeneration. The point is not that we just need a law. The point is that we need a, a new nature, a new life, a regeneration. The letter, that is the law, could not bring about the new birth. Couldn't do it. By nature, in our father Adam, we're dead in sin, enslaved to sin, held captive by the law to condemnation, and and the law answered none of those needs. It could not do that. Not because it was deficient, but because of the flesh. It did what it was supposed to do perfectly. The law actually only left us in a worse condition because it demanded our punishment. It just shows us our sin and shows us what our sin deserves constantly. So we see the inability of the law. The law, weakened by the flesh, could not do those things. Secondly, we see the activity of God. The activity of God. We might call this 
the glorious activity of God. Or, or you know, throw in, throw in some adjective there. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What the law could not do, not only could God do it, the text says He did it. That's Paul's argument. God has done all of those things that the law couldn't do. He's accomplished it. How so? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. First we see that God sent His own Son. This is the activity of God. We're thinking about this God that we worship. This God who has done for us what the law could not do for us. What did He do? He sent His own Son. Romans 8.32 says, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. John 3.17, God sent His Son into the world in order that the world might be saved through Him. God sent His Son. While there are many sons by adoption through the Spirit, there is only one true Son of the Father, begotten of the Father before all worlds, and eternally in the bosom of the Father, the only Son. Those of us who have children know what it's like. You, you, when you have one, and then the next one is on the way, you think, how could I love another one as much as I love this one? But then the next one comes, and it just, it, it just happens. Then another one comes along, if, if the Lord grants, and you think, how can I love the next one as much as I love these? But then it just happens. I, I think we're created this way. Our capacity to love increases as the object of our love increases. So that we love every single one of our children as if they were the only one. And we would never say, well, since I've got 12 sons, one of them doesn't matter. I'll give that one. If we had a thousand sons, we wouldn't say, well, since I have a thousand, one of them doesn't matter. If we had a thousand sons, we wouldn't give one of our sons for our dearest friend. But the reality, the point being, if we had more of them, that wouldn't reduce the significance of one. But if we only had one, that would increase the significance of that one. It doesn't work both ways, in other words. It's like the, the, the parable that Nathan told of, of the man with a ewe lamb. He had, all he had was one ewe lamb. Now, if he had said, well, all he had was a thousand ewe lambs, and somebody came, we would say, what's the big deal? But he said he had one ewe lamb. And what does that do? That increases the pain of the loss in that, in that story. The God of heaven and earth... Look down upon men in our miserable condition, born under arrest, criminals before His bar, and He did not spare His only Son. But He gave Him up for us. He didn't merely relinquish Him. He didn't merely let Him go. He didn't merely allow Him to be taken. God sent His Son into the world. This was... God's devising, God's plan. God said, I'll send my only son into the world. But more than that, the text says that God sent His own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is, He became a man. It would have been a, a, an astonishing condescension if He sent His son to come as the, the eternal word manifested in some glorious uh, image that just astonished all of us in His full divinity and essence in some way. But that's not what He did. He sent Him in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice it doesn't say in sinful flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. The, the point is, He was true man, and yet without sin. He was the seed of the woman, not of Adam. He was completely pure, without any stain of sin. He looked like a man under all of the corruptions of sinful flesh, and He was a true man, yet without the sin. Think about the infinite condescension there is in sending the Son of God, and the Son of God volunteering to come and be as a man. He was not sinful. 
yet He was born in the likeness of sin. He Himself was without spot or blemish or any such thing. And yet He walked among men full of spots, full of blemishes and such things. His holy flesh never became accustomed to the most trivial sins of His nearest friends. Every one of the trivial sins of His closest followers stung His holy flesh and heart and shocked Him as if it were the first because He is holy, 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 even in His human flesh. But He came to do that and He endured that. And the text, another text is Philippians 2. He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. It doesn't mean that He lost any of His glory or He gave up anything or He was divested of any infinite perfection they had from all eternity. Even as He walked the earth, even as the dust covered His feet, He was still true God as He had always been. Vested with all of the essential attributes of God Himself. Losing none and yet walking the earth and yet... He took the form of a servant. He lowered Himself to be a servant of men. So that in the holy Jesus we have one sent from eternity, from the bosom of His Father, joining to Himself the nature of a man in one person, the Son of God. God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now why would He do this? He says He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. That is, for a sin offering, uh, as a sacrifice for sin. Whereas the law made nothing perfect, it still demanded satisfaction to the justice of God. And God sent His Son to be the sacrifice to make that satisfaction. A sacrifice for sins. Ephesians 5.2 says that Christ... Notice the order. Loved us and gave Himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Sin against God deserves death. Not merely physical death, but eternal death. What the Bible calls the second death. Hell. One sin deserves eternal hell. All of the animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant made no such payment. They made nothing perfect. They purified the flesh, but not the conscience. The outer man, but not the inner man. And so God sent forth His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet sinless, to be the sacrifice that would actually atone for the sins of men. That's what happened at the cross. As Jesus was dying, He was dying under the penalty of God's law for our sins. And in doing this, Paul says that God condemned sin in the flesh. Fleshy men deserve a fleshy death. Sin must receive its punishment in human flesh. In the death of Jesus Christ, our sins received their punishment in His flesh. 1 Peter 2 he Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. You, you see the language of what's been called the great exchange. Our sins, His body. Our sins, His body. My sins, His body. Your sins, His body on the tree. When His body suffered, our sins were being punished in His body. So we see the inability of the law. We see the activity of God. He sent forth His Son to be a sacrifice for sins in order to condemn sin in the flesh. Now thirdly, we see the goal envisioned in this work. The goal envisioned in this work of God. I've, I've emphasized this many times. Usually when we think of the death of Christ and the work of atonement, sacrifice offered to God, our first and most prominent goal, the thing that we have in mind, is eternal life or heaven. That's what we think of first. And for many people, the, the good news of the gospel is that you can get out of hell and into heaven. And very often in gospel presentations, that's what's dangled in front of people to get them to come and make a decision for Christ. You don't want to go to hell, do you? You want to go to heaven. Well, then come and trade hell for heaven. We don't want to ignore 
the reality that that's true, that if you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved and you will escape the flames of hell and you will upon death enter heaven. We don't want to ignore that, but the gospel of Scripture has immediate application right this minute, right now. It does address how we live in this life. We see the language of intention or production in the words of the beginning words of verse 4, in order that. There's one Greek word that means to this end. Here, here was the goal of that. What's the purpose of all this? What's the goal envisioned in God sending His Son to be condemned in our place, to do what the law couldn't do? Remember that the whole context is the life of a Christian. The context is the war of indwelling sin. The context is the reality that our best deeds are coupled with our natural corruption. So we read, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, I'm going to give you two different views on what this phrase means. The history of interpretation has has almost exclusively split two ways. Number one, this phrase, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The first view says that what, what's being said here is that what God's law requires, that is death, is fulfilled in us as we are united to Christ in His death. In other words, His death is our death or was our death similar to what we saw last week. His fulfilling of the penalty of the law was our fulfilling of the penalty of the law. Now that's a true statement. We saw it last week. That's obviously true. A parallel to that view would be 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sins imputed to Christ, Christ's righteousness imputed to us. We become the righteousness, not in ourselves but through imputation. That's the first view of, of what this phrase means. The second view is this. What God's law requires, obedience, can now be fulfilled in the lives of the saints because of what Christ has done in removing its penalty. In removing the penalty and condemnation of the law, Christ sets us free to keep the law. Not for justification... Not in any sense perfectly or without stain, but rather in a way in which we need not fear condemnation for our obedience. And this is the illustration I used last night with my children. If I told you to go into the kitchen and make me two eggs over medium, and I said over medium, not over easy, not over well. I don't want any whites runny. I don't want any yellows hard. I want the yellows hard, or I want the yellows runny, and I want the whites hard. And if there is, if I find any runny whites or any hard yellows, you're going to get the worst spanking that you've ever had in your life. Now go on, skedaddle. I said, would you with joy and delight run into the kitchen to make those eggs? They said, no. I said, okay, now let's... The exact same scenario, except I say, and if I find any runny whites or any hard yellows, it'll be okay, I'll eat them. Because that really doesn't bother me all that much, to a certain extent. <laughs> Would you then be excited to go make those eggs? And they all said, yes! Okay, that's, that's sort of the, the idea here. In comprehending that the, the penalty of the law has been condemned... For all of our sins, that then releases us to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. And a parallel of this view would be the text I quoted earlier from 1 Peter. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's application now. The virtue of His death is made over to us to mortify our own sins. The same for His resurrection. Now that more common view, the, the, the more popular view is the first one which is the one I'm not preaching, but I just wanted you to know that it's there. And if you like that view, you can, that's fine too. But the, that, when you read men give that view, the, the, the reason that they state that view is, is almost 
exclusively this. They say there's no way that the law of God can be fulfilled by a person, a human being. Therefore, this cannot be talking about the lives of the saints. It has to mean something else. But later on in Romans, Paul does say, Romans 13, 8, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. But then I got to thinking about this even more, and I went to Psalm 119. Again, the objection is a believer can in no way fulfill the law, can in no way keep the law. It can't be talking about that. Psalm 119, verses 1 to 3. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. Now, do we read that and say, yeah, but that person doesn't exist? Does the blessed man in the Psalms not find its fulfillment in reality? Is that, is that not a real person who walks in the law of the Lord? Verse 22, I have kept your testimonies. Verse 44, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Verse 55, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. Verse 60, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Verse 67, I keep your word. Verse 69, with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Verse 87, I have not forsaken your precepts. 100, I keep your precepts. 102, I do not turn aside from your rules. 106, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. 110, I do not stray from your precepts. 129, the tes your testimonies are wonderful, therefore for my soul keeps them. 145, I will keep your statutes. 166, I do your commandments. 168, I keep your precepts and testimonies. When we read those statements, do we say, what David means there is that he keeps the law, claiming an inerrant, infallible, sinless perfection every time he makes those statements. Of course not. He's claiming, I believe, a true New Covenant evangelical obedience. He's claiming an obedience which is not His justification. He's already said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord counts no iniquities. That, that's His justification. He's claiming an obedience here that comes right alongside with the doctrines of repentance and mercy and grace that He Himself knew. It all goes together. Evangelical obedience, a part of that is repentance when you sin. That's evangelical obedience. It assumes that our obedience will even be tainted, and yet we take that to Christ. So if we take all of that and we couple it with the context of the passage, the righteous lives of the saints, then I feel compelled, even in the face of some strong opponents, to conclude that what Paul intends in this passage is the evangelical obedience which has been made possible through the death of Christ. Now listen to what our confession says, because I think we confess this, at least in part, if we don't go to this text. Our confession says that we've been freed from the curse and unallayed rigor of the law. Not the law, the curse of the law, and the unallayed rigor of the law. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the rigor and curse of the law. Not the law completely. We're not lawless. The condemning wrath of God and the curse of the law are distinct from the rigor of it. What's the rigor of it? No repentance, no mercy, no grace. That's not the law that God has given us under the new covenant. We have the same law and yet it comes along with repentance and mercy and grace. Not in its unallayed rigor. We've been freed from that. Not to be lawless but to actually keep the law of God, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, does this have a parallel anywhere in Scripture? We've read 1 Peter. I think this is the way Paul sort of began this discussion in Romans 7, 4-6. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. He condemned sin in the flesh. The flesh of who? The flesh of Christ. The body of Christ. So that you may belong to another to Him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, now what? Now that we have died to the law through the body of Christ, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we can forget the law of God, live however we want to, and go to heaven when we die. No, that's not what he says. So that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit and not 
the way of the written code. We do so not by the bare letter of the law. Do this. That's not how Christians live. We serve in the way of the Spirit or by the power of the Spirit. And that's exactly what he says. Back to Romans 8. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. That's living now. That's walking now. That's not something in eternity or even justification. It's talking about how we live. In other words, it's precisely as we walk by the Spirit, according to the Spirit, that this reality is made manifest in our lives, not in our own power and strength, but in the power of the Spirit. We saw this several weeks ago in Galatians 5. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It is as we walk by the Spirit, not gratifying the desires of the flesh, living by the power of the Spirit, keeping in lockstep with His guidance through the Word of God, that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Several things that we can glean from this passage. The condemning or the condemnation of sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ has accomplished several things. Number one, the penalty of the law toward our sin was executed on Christ. Number two, the penalty of the law toward our sin is removed from us. Number three, the requirement of the law can now be fulfilled in us without fear of condemnation. And number four, we've been united to Christ by His Spirit, by whom we bear fruit for God. Now in, in two weeks, not next week, but the week after, we're going to take... The, several of the specific things that we've talked about by way of application. I'm just going to pretty much preach an entire sermon on application. And I think we'll be finished with this series at that point. But what I want to do today is remind you of what God has done. That's, this is the point. It's to stir you up by way of reminder. Because this is what Paul writes to do. This is what Peter does. If I can stir your mind up and remind you of the truth, you will live in a way that God commands. Sin is damning in the face of God's law and damaging on a practical level in our lives. Sin has effects right now. It's not just hell. It's right now. The, 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 the way of the wicked is awful. Right? We, see, we know people like this. We see their lives, they don't know the Lord, and their, their lives are in utter disarray. Not that Christ comes along and puts all the pieces back together perfectly in an instant, but they've got nowhere to go, nowhere to look. And they've brought themselves into that place. Sin not only brings us to eternal punishment, but it's damaging in our lives right now. The law on tablets of stone, or unregenerate hearts, was powerless to give life. And the law simply stated is still powerless. Do we not know people who are lost? We say, hey, you shouldn't do that. It doesn't change them. Well, you know, what you should really do is you should come to church. They don't want to come to church. Well, how much time have you spent reading the Bible? They don't want to read the Bible. Well, you know you should. Yeah, everybody knows they should. They can't. And just telling them, just giving that law, doesn't render any change in them. The law of God must never be disassociated from the God of the law and love for Him. And love for Him can never be separated from belief in the gospel. So then consider this God who has done what the law could not do for us. He didn't have to. Nothing, nothing bound Him to it. He could have left us, and He didn't. He did it for us. He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for us, for you, and for me. He sent His own Son as a sacrifice for sin to suffer the awful agonies of the cross plus the unallayed rigor of His eternal wrath and condemnation for us. He condemned our sin in the body of His own Son. Do you see His love for you? What love would it take to do that? You know the song, What love is this? What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this? That's what Paul wants us to see. You need to see the love of God. And then when you see it, love Him. And loving Him, obey Him. 
but you object. This is what we do. We live our lives in this Romans 7 thing. You object. I hear you saying obey. I know myself. I will fail. I will not obey Him perfectly. And when I do keep God's commandments, I know, if you don't know, you need to know, that when you obey God, there is enough sin in your obedience to damn you. We need to understand that. What's Paul's answer? No, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law could not do, God did. There's no condemnation for those who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The condemnation due to the sin in your best works was poured out on Christ. It's not just all of the sins leading up to your conversion. But even now, your obedience comes before the Father with all of the stain of sin removed. Condemnation gone. He receives it as already perfected in Christ when it's carried out in the Spirit. The Father receives the bouquet of our obedience only after Christ has removed all the weeds. I thought this was an excellent illustration. I had, I had never thought of this before, and some of you I'm sure have. Though we live before God, like Jacob before Isaac, the voice is our own. But the smell is that of our elder brother because we've been clothed in his righteousness. And thus clothed, we receive the blessing. We're treated like the elder brother, not like who we really are. That's how we have to think in our obedience, not fearful trembling. Keep one eye on the law of God. What does He require of me? And filter everything through that. We live every moment of our lives before the face of God. Everything that we do is right before His eyes. And everything that we do and believe and say must be filtered through this, this way of thinking, what does God require of me? And at the exact same time, the other eye is looking on Christ who's already satisfied all of the demands of God's law, who's already taken all the condemnation away from us. We, we hold both of those things and then we live. That's what Paul's saying here. So as we come to the Lord's table, we do practice a, a closed communion. And so if you are a member of this church, you can come to the Lord's table with us together. But we want everybody, even those who are not members to take a few minutes as the elements are passed and contemplate the Christ that has been preached and specifically His work on the cross. The Lord's table is a time where we remember His body broken, His blood shed, the work of the cross. And so as the elements are passed, consider that. Revel, if you want to, revel in no condemnation. And then we'll come to the Lord's table together.